Welcome to This Week in Astrology. This is episode number 328 for the week of September 9th, 2013. This Week in Astrology is the free podcast that deepens your astrological wisdom. We always start with the coming week's astrological forecast and regularly feature listener emails, recorded listener consultations, and interviews with other astrologers. Make This Week in Astrology a regular part of your astrological education. Thanks so much for listening. I'm your host, Benjamin Bernstein, broadcasting from the virtual location of ThisWeekInAstrology.com and the physical location of Asheville, North Carolina. We have a very special long show for you this week. We're going to open, as always, with the forecast for the next seven days, followed by a preview of the following week. And following a few quick announcements, we're going to have an astrologer interview, part one of two, with Raphael Nasser. And Raphael appears in the new book, Transpersonal Astrology, Explorations at the Frontier, in which I also have a chapter. He is the final chapter and has a most provocative viewpoint that humans actually created the meanings of the planets and the constellations as they sky-gazed throughout history. And he calls this noetic astrology. And uh, it's a very fascinating argument, and it takes him two hours to lay it all out. So the first hour is on this week's show, and then we'll conclude on next week's show with part two of his interview. So I'm very excited about this show. Um, I've already heard the entire interview, and I'm very excited to share it with you. So without further ado, let's jump into this week's forecast. Let's start with what's old. We've got a waxing moon. We've got some aspect patterns in play. There's a T-square with Jupiter, Uranus, and Pluto through September 12th. We've got another T-square with Mars, Juno, and Saturn through September 14th. A cradle aspect pattern that I talked about last week is going on through September 30th with Ceres, Saturn, Chiron, and Pluto. And there's also a grand cross still in play through September 14th with Mars, Juno, Saturn, and the lunar nodes. We'll also be talking about a lot more aspect patterns that are kicking in this week. So it's a very uh, interlaced sky, you might say. We also have planets that are retrograde. There's five of them right now. Pluto, Juno, Neptune, Chiron, and Uranus. What's new this week? Actions may speak louder than words, but there's plenty of support for both this week. Just Do It Mars makes four mostly challenging aspects to outer planets and helps form a finger of God. And mental Mercury is poised for flashes of brilliance with aspects to three outer planets and involvement in three potent aspect patterns. Venus also makes an appearance entering Scorpio and trining Neptune. To be more specific, there are four Mercury events. Mercury enters Libra, quincunxes Neptune and Chiron, and squares Pluto. Mars also has four events, all aspects. Mars will square Saturn, quincunx Pluto and Chiron, and trine Uranus. Uh, there's also some aspect patterns that I mentioned. The Yod is Pluto, Chiron, and Mars. Uh, there are two T-squares. Uh, they both have Mercury and Uranus in them, but one is Mercury, Uranus, Pluto. The other is Mercury, Jupiter, Uranus, and they join together to form a grand cross with Mercury, Jupiter, Uranus, and Pluto. So yeah, a lot of intense energy this week. And as always, we're going to now uh, get down into our details and go day by day and learn how to make the best use of each day's astrological energy. 
Let's roll off on Monday, September 9th. We have Mercury entering Libra. It's going to be there through September 29th, encouraging harmonious relating and creative thinking and writing. Also here on Monday, September 9th, we have Mars square Saturn. This is with Mars at 8 Leo and Saturn at 8 Scorpio. Under this aspect, it may feel as if you're driving with the brakes on. But Energizer Bunny Endurance is available if you keep pressing forward with appropriate initiative and assertiveness, those Martian qualities. This is especially true in the areas of leadership and spotlighted performance, since Mars is in Leo. We close Monday with a Moon-Saturn conjunction. This is happening very late in the day, about 11.45 a.m. Let me correct that. Uh, That's very late in the morning, 11.45 a.m. roughly, around 8 Scorpio. So basically, through the whole workday, there may be a sense of uh, possible heaviness or resistance. Saturn can bring that out. But it can also be fabulous for productivity and good time management and maturity and responsibility and all those high-side Saturn qualities, too. So it could be that on Monday, you'll just need to uh, put your nose to the grindstone a little bit more, um, get your momentum started. Once you do, then your continued efforts tend to be supported by Saturn. On Tuesday, September 10th, we open with a void moon. That's at 5.22 a.m. U.S. Eastern Time. And we actually are going to have to wait till Wednesday for the resolution of that void. So basically the whole day Tuesday pretty much is going to be a void moon day. That means try not to start major new things on this day and treat it more a little like business as usual sort of day if you can. If you got to start something, then start it. But Optimally, you want to use Void of Course Moons more for routine events rather than major initiations. Now, do you feel dynamic tension between your gentler inclinations and your more assertive feminine side? You can consciously strike an appropriate balance because we have Venus and Libra square Pallas Athena. And the exact coordinates here are Venus is very late in Libra, 29 degrees, 39 minutes. And Pallas is equally late in the sign of Cancer, 29 degrees, 39 minutes Cancer. We've got some aspect patterns today, too, in fact. Uh, Mars, Chiron, and Pluto form a Yod or Yod, which is a combination of two quincunxes and a sextile, so two 150-degree angles and a 60-degree angle on the back end. And Mars is at the point. This is a great time for creative experiences that support healing and transformation, whether you're performing or appreciating. This four-day yod does not give you a lot of time to work with, since it peaks on 9-11 and ends on 9-13. But since Mars represents initiation, you can at least get started on such a creative venture. And I'm using these creative terms because Mars is in Leo, the sign of the performer in the spotlight and the leader and the king and such. You can also use this yod to support healing and transformation, um, again, the meanings of Chiron and Pluto, by taking the reins and directing a stressful situation in a more peaceful direction. Also today, we have a T-square. This one features Mercury, Uranus, and Pluto. And this opportunity to revolutionize your thinking starts today, here on the 10th of September, peaks on 914 and ends on 918. Verbal conflict can be triggered under this energy, so take a hint from Mercury's Libran placement and anticipate the other person's likely reaction before you speak. This aspect pattern can also inspire creative breakthroughs, especially those involving verbal or written communication. 
On Wednesday, September 11th, we have Venus entering Scorpio. She's going to be there through October 7th. And this supports transformational relating, tantric sexuality, and provocative creativity. Pushing the envelope on what people find acceptable. Scorpio loves that. And Venus is the artist, of course. We have the resolution of yesterday's void of course moon. Just to remind you, that moon went void on Tuesday, the 10th of September. And that went void at, let me get the exact moment here. That was 5.22 a.m. U.S. Eastern Time. And the moon comes into its next sign of Sagittarius here on Wednesday, September 11th. And that's at 2.36 a.m. U.S. Eastern Time. The moon in Sagittarius is a feeling of expansive euphoria, uh, can support religion, philosophy, meaning of life, foreign cultures, either traveling to them or diving into things that are foreign to you. So all those things can uh, be lovely as the moon's in Sagittarius. Today we also have Mars quincunx Pluto. This is Mars at 9 Leo exactly, and Pluto also exactly at 9 Capricorn. Mars and Pluto are astrology's most sexual planets. Their edgy quincunx could fuel intensity and theatrics in the bedroom, especially with Mars in dramatic Leo. So if you want to play dress-up, boy, what a great energy. (laughs) Make whatever adjustments are needed to fine-tune this erotic volatility to your taste. Mars and Leo also represent leadership, while Pluto represents power. Adjustments may also be needed under this quincunx so that authority, rather than just serving the ego of its wielder, is exercised for the highest good of all. Also today, Mercury quincunxes Neptune. This is Mercury at 3.5 Libra, Neptune at 3.5 Pisces. Uh, This foretells potential communication confusion. Mercury is the communication and Neptune is the potential confusion. But take pains to make sure you're understanding and being understood, and this will minimize that or eliminate it. Inspiration is also available, especially in the areas of creative writing and thinking. Take away the aspect, you just have Mercury and Neptune coming together, and that can be very inspiring. So remember, the nature of the planets that are connecting is always more important than the aspect. The aspect, of course, does play a role, but if you focus your intention strongly, you can usually get past difficult qualities of the aspect and just focus on connecting the planets together in a good way. We also have a trine between Libra and Mercury and Juno, to be exact. Mercury is at 4 Libra and Juno is at 4 Aquarius. They're close there anyway. And this supports flowing communication in committed relationships. And finally here for Wednesday, September 11th, the Mars Chiron Pluto Yod that started on September 10th yesterday peaks today and will end on September 13th. Thursday, September 12th is our lightest day of the week. All we have is a void moon event, which is happening at 1.09 p.m. U.S. Eastern Time. So starting at 1.09 p.m. and through midnight Thursday, the moon is void. We resolve that void moon right away on Friday, September 13th. It's the first event of the day at 5.56 a.m. U.S. Eastern Time. The moon hits Capricorn. Good energy for productivity and responsibility and maturity and good time management and all those high vibration Capricorn qualities that I love so much because Capricorn's the strongest energy in my chart. We also today have a moon-Pluto conjunction. This is kicking in around 9 p.m. U.S. Eastern Time, so a few hours either side of that. The energy of Pluto, transformation, 
uh, psychological depths, diving into the very deepest parts of something are all strongly encouraged. Pluto is also, as I mentioned a moment ago, sexuality and Tantra and the occult. So if you're into any of that kind of stuff, then Friday evening should be a marvelous time for you. Also today on Friday, September 13th, we have that grand cross I mentioned forming. Uh, it's a six-day event, and it adds Jupiter to the Mercury-Uranus-Pluto T-square I already mentioned, and that started on September 10th. The core possibilities of that T-square, innovative thinking, verbal conflict potentially, and creative breakthroughs are given extra potency by Jupiter's amplifying power. And this way we're thinking of Jupiter just, you know, amplifying what's already happening to Mercury. Now, a grand cross is astrology's most challenging aspect pattern. If we want to think about Jupiter being affected by the other planets, especially Uranus and Pluto, we could think about revolutionary transformation of your religious beliefs, philosophies, and perspective on life, the universe, and everything, which are all Jupiterian themes. This grand cross peaks on September 15th and ends on September 18th. And just to uh, fill in all the aspect patterns, uh, we have another T-square starting this day, which has three of those grand cross members, Mercury, Jupiter, and Uranus, involved. It's going to peak on September 16th and end on September 19th, one day after the grand cross concludes. Really, we've already, in interpreting the grand cross, talked about what you can do with Mercury, Jupiter, and Uranus in combination. So pretty much same interpretation. And... Uh, pretty much the same event, more or less, there. But technically, the T-square is a distinct event, and so I wanted to mention it and give it its due. We'll be right back with the weekend forecast and much more. You can hear my weekly forecast every week on This Week in Astrology, but would you also like to get a free, concise version in writing? How about having it conveniently pop into your inbox every week? And while we're at it, how about occasional bonus articles on astrology, along with simple, powerful healing and awakening techniques? That's what you get with AstroShaman's free weekly email newsletter. To subscribe, go to astroshaman.com. You'll see the newsletter sign-up form at the top of the sidebar. And if you like calculating your own astrology charts, why not use the world's leading Windows astrology software and get it for the lowest price available? It's All Good Astrology is an authorized dealer for Solar Fire Gold. It'll even run on your Mac under Windows emulation software. To learn more or place your order, visit astroshaman.com. From there, click on Products in the menu bar and choose Solar Fire Software from the drop-down menu. A free weekly forecast and the best available price on Solar Fire Gold. Two great reasons to visit astroshaman.com right now. Let's get into the weekend. On Saturday, September 14th, we have Venus trine Neptune. Venus at three and a half Scorpio, Neptune at three and a half Pisces. You can enjoy enhanced creative inspiration, more soul deep connection with those you love and easier merging with your own divine nature as Venus and Scorpio trines Neptune. Next up, Mars and Chiron form a quincunx. Mars, 11 Leo, and Chiron, 11 Pisces. And we also have Mars trining Uranus today. I'm going to put these both into a single interpretation. And at this point, Mars is still at 11 Leo, and Uranus is at 11 Aries. So the first, Mars-Chiron-Quincunx, can stimulate wounding behavior, but it can also help you initiate healing. Chiron covers both sides of the fence there. 
And the Mars-Uranus trine can help you translate intuitive flashes directly into action. Also today, Mercury squares Pluto. We've got a lot of uh, Mercury and Mars hitting outer planets this week, as you can see. Mercury is at 9 Libra. Pluto's at 9 Capricorn. So telling the honest truth while remaining sensitive to the other person's emotions is a better choice than verbal sparring as Libra and Mercury squares Pluto. We also have a void moon kicking in today here on Saturday, September 14th. This particular void is kicking in at 7.17 p.m. U.S. Eastern Time and it will go past midnight. Also, finally, here on Saturday, September 14th, the Mercury-Uranus-Pluto T-square that started on September 10th peaks today and wraps up on September 18th. We'll wrap up our forecast for the week with Sunday, September 15th. The void moon that kicked in yesterday resolves as the moon enters Aquarius, and that is at 8.06 a.m. U.S. Eastern Time. Just to jog your memory, the void moon happened. I'm searching for it here. <laughs> that was yesterday, Saturday, September 14th at 7.17 p.m. So 7.17 p.m. Saturday to Sunday at 8.06 a.m. U.S. Eastern Time. Moon in Aquarius, of course, favors being unique and uh, nurturing your own special talents and serving the greater collective with them and following your intuitive flashes. We have a Moon-Juno conjunction here on Sunday the 15th of September. That's around 3 p.m. U.S. Eastern Time. And the qualities of Juno, faithful wife. Juno also represents the three phases of womanhood, maiden to mother to crone. Uh, that's her bailiwick as well. So uh, mainly I use Juno to speak of committed relationships of some kind. So that energy is supported with the moon conjunct Juno. We also today have Saturn sextile series. This is Saturn at eight and a half Scorpio, series at eight and a half Virgo. This offers stability for your self-esteem and material concerns, both themes that Ceres carries. We also have got Mercury Quincunx Chiron today. Mercury 11 Libra, Chiron 11 Pisces. Your words gain power to either wound or heal. I certainly recommend healing. And finally, final event of the week, the Grand Cross that started on September 13th involving Mercury, Jupiter, Uranus, and Pluto peaks today on Sunday, September 15th and wraps up on September 18th. And that ends our forecast for the seven days of the week. Let's peek ahead to next week's events. Uh, one of our headliners is the sun entering Libra. This is not just an ordinary sign change. It marks the fall equinox. So that's also, the that means on next week's show, I will be drawing a free consultation winner. I do this every time the seasons change, four times a year. So if you have not already emailed me with your name and your birth data, which means your date, time, and city of birth, please do so. You can do that from any page of astroshaman.com. Use the contact link in the upper right corner. Or if you just want to do straight email, info at astroshaman.com is the easiest email address to use. Um, we'll talk about the sun's entry into Libra uh, next week. We're also going to have a full moon to talk about. Uh, we got more Mercury action. We had a lot of Mercury this week, but we got three more events. Mercury is going to oppose Uranus, sextile Mars, and square Jupiter. 
Venus is getting a lot busier this coming week. She's going to conjunct Saturn, sextile Pluto, trine Chiron, and quincunx Uranus. That's a lot of Venusian activity. Probably some relationship challenge rolled in there too. We're going to have also Saturn sextile Pluto to help you release structures that no longer serve you. And finally, after several weeks of no uh, stationings or, or movement changes, we're going to have Pluto turning direct. And so it's another uh, full week of astrological events. And as always, I'm going to be here helping you make the best use of them. I look forward to sharing that all with you on next week's show. I have a few quick announcements for you this week before we get into our uh, astrologer interview with Raphael Nasser. Uh, information on all the events I'm about to mention are available for you on the homepage of astroshaman.com. Just look in the What's New section. You may have to scroll down just a tiny bit to get there. I'm now, every single Tuesday, doing a shamanic invocation, heal, and awaken meetup. If there ever is an exception, I'll give you notice. Um, so you can either come in person to my home in Asheville, North Carolina, or you can call in and join us on the phone. Always plenty of lines open for that. So uh, if you want to find a very simple way to have your own ability to call in your own healing and awakening from your own divine source empowered, that's exactly what we do. And I use shamanic uh, modalities to make it stronger beyond the actual invocations themselves. Always available by love offering. And that will be every Tuesday, including this, 7.30 to 9 p.m. U.S. Eastern Time. I appeared on Esoterically Speaking with Shelly Enteen on August 28th, and I now have the link online, so you can easily access the archive edition of that show. That is not in the What's News section, but if just below that, you'll see I have a uh, section on the homepage called Practical Spirituality, and that is where the link currently lives. And we focused on my invocations, on shamanic astrology, and I also did a couple of listener um, on-air interpretations. The second, in particular, was quite interesting. So if you want to learn more about astrology, which I assume you do if you're listening here, then I think you'll get some good use out of that archive broadcast. I'm recording this on Saturday, September 7th. Tomorrow, Sunday, September 8th, I will be at Organic Fest in downtown Asheville at the Pay It Forward booth. I'll be there in the latter part of the afternoon. So if you'd like to swing by and maybe do a quick little mini reading or a little quick shamanic healing, I'll be there and ready to roll. Also on Saturday, September 14th, if you're anywhere near Greenville, South Carolina, I'm going to be in Taylor's, South Carolina, which is just northeast of there at the Windsong Spiritual Center Fair. It's their first annual event from 10 to 4 that Saturday. And I will have my booth set up, and I will be spending the whole day doing shamanic healing and uh, astrology and such. I'm also doing a presentation there from noon to almost one, and I will be leading people in invocations. Basically, I'll be doing the shamanic invocation, heal and awaken process there. So if you're anywhere near there, you're welcome to show up. It's free attendance, and uh, you're welcome to come out. Also, uh, long-term things I'm going to mention super briefly because they're October events. This is just sort of mark your calendar stuff. Uh, Wednesday, October 2nd, that evening, I'll be doing my shamanic invocations, heal and awaken process at the Namaste Center in Hendersonville, North Carolina. If you want to establish, um, rather, if you want to attend a wonderful festival, the second rendition of 3DL, Three Days of Light, will be October 11th through 13th just about an hour outside Asheville in Hot Springs, North Carolina. I'll be presenting there on that Sunday, and we'll be attending the festival the entire three days. It's just a wonderful, high-consciousness, really high-vibration event. 
I'll be doing astrology and shamanic healing at the Leaf Festival, October 18 to 20, including a 9 a.m. Saturday morning presentation. You guessed it, shamanic invocations, heal and awaken. And there's a wonderful thing called the Coptic Conference near Asheville, actually in Hendersonville this year. Uh, completely free attendance all day on Saturday, October 26th. It's just by love offering fantastic speakers on high vibration metaphysical topics. And I'm going to be there not just on Saturday the 26th, but also the afternoon and early evening of Friday, October 25th, doing astrology and shamanic healing. And I'll be doing it for less than my usual rates. So great opportunity to work with me if you want to do that in the Hendersonville, North Carolina area. We'll be at Blue Ridge Community College, actually. So information on all this stuff, as I said, you can access it all. More detail from the homepage of astroshaman.com. And if you're able to attend any of these events, either in person or virtually, you are welcome. As you can hear, we're easing into our music break, after which we will have our astrologer interview with Raphael Nasser on Noetic Astrology. That was the beginning of Paradise Lost by Steve Kindler. Welcome to our live astrologer interview. I'm extremely pleased this week to have with me Raphael Nasser, who I may just call Rafi. And uh, he is the author of Under One Sky, which was actually one of the very first astrology books I ever read and was really instrumental in piquing my fascination with astrology and prompting me to do my deeper studies thereafter. And he's also one of the authors of the new book, Transpersonal Astrology Explorations at the Frontier. Regular listeners to the show will know I've been talking about this book for a while, not so much the last few weeks, but when it came out, I was all over it. And I wrote a chapter on transpersonal astrology, and Raphael wrote an, a, a chapter called um, no, Astrology, the Noetic Science, which I found really fascinating and which put a concept out there I had not seen before. And just to give the punchline at the first, uh, Raphael makes the case that humans actually invented the meanings of the planets. And uh, that will be a very fascinating topic to get into, how you came to that. And it's a very well-argued uh, thesis, and I tend to believe it myself. So I look forward to exploring that as well as many other fascinating things. Uh, for Oh, I've been talking a lot, haven't I? Rafi, welcome to the show. Thank you, Gretchen. <laughs> May I... Good to be here. Yeah, I'm so honored to uh, to have the opportunity to work with you. Uh, may I give a little bit of a synopsis from your bio so people will have a sense of some of your fascinating life experience? Sure. Okay. 
Um, Raphael's family moved all, all around the world, London, Madrid, Geneva, by the time he was 10. And then he, after graduating from an Ivy League school at 22, began wondering, who am I? The big existential question. He, you got into meditation and apparently did a very powerful meditative practice that, as you put it in your bio, short-circuited, forgive me, short-circuited your subtle energy field. And then you, la- then you spent over two decades in a state of acute physical, mental, and emotional pain. Ouch. Uh, but your awareness was unscathed. And as you put it, you spent the greater part of every day listlessly witnessing my exquisite pain. And uh, during this uh, process, uh, you were very deepened spiritually. You finally were healed by a man named Robert Peng, who was a uh, Qigong master, which is actually the name of the book you co-wrote with him, Qigong Master. And you, uh, we'll get into how exactly you got into astrology, but uh, your study of astrology and discovering there were numerous conflicting ways of approaching it uh, got you into some confusion, as you told me a moment ago, and you therefore had 12 different astrologers read the same chart blind in the book Under One Sky, which is a fascinating book, and I highly recommend it to everybody out there. Um, and then you began getting into Ken Wilbur and Don Beck with his Spiral Dynamics, and you, your life, you're, you're far more than just an astrologer. In fact, um, you're the only astrologer I've interviewed who's actually not doing astrology right now because you're so deep into your studies, apparently. Well, not apparently. You are studying massage and wanting to integrate that with astrology and other modalities to to make a more integral form of healing. If, is that correct? That is correct. Yeah. And, um, and you're also writing a novel about reincarnation. Is that still on the front burner? Uh, it's on the back burner because, uh, as I mentioned uh, uh, when we spoke earlier, the I, I thought massage school was something I would do on the side part time, and it's doing me full time. <laughs> so I had to I had to put uh, readings on the side, and I had to put this novel on the side as well. Mm. And it's more than just reincarnation; it's also an astrological novel. Cool. Well, I'm sure once it comes out, it'll be amazing based on the quality of your writings that I've read so far. So, uh, so I've yammered a lot about you, but I think it'd be better to let you speak for yourself. Um, do you want to dive right into the topic that has probably piqued our listeners' interest, which is how could humans possibly have created the meanings of the astrological signs, or do you want to lay some conceptual groundwork first? Uh, well, I'll let you ask questions, and I think we'll just kind of allow the topic to evolve organically. Okay, beautiful. Okay, so now that we put the teaser out there, we'll we'll backtrack to the beginning of the story. <laughs> Um, so, um, it's always interesting to learn how astrologers discover astrology. How did you come upon it in the first place? Well, I was in my early 20s, and I was attending uh, a meditation uh, retreat, and there was uh, a very attractive young lady um, who was uh, an astrologer, and I didn't even know my my son sign. That's how little I knew about astrology. Huh. And so um, she was doing cold readings based on sun signs, and uh, came my turn, and uh, I discovered uh, uh, to my utter horror that I was uh, a Virgo born under the sign of the Virgin, not what you want to hear at the age of 22. (laughs) Uh, I wanted to be a Leo or a Scorpio, but uh, there I was, a Virgo, and so I instantly became a skeptic. How Virgoan of me. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, I went to uh, the Barnes and Nobles uh, a few weeks later, and passing through the, at the time it was called the occult section, 
saw a few astrological uh, books and decided to kind of sneak a peek because I assumed she was just reflecting back what she already knew about me. But in fact, uh, her, her basic reading was pretty accurate of certain character traits. And um, I read some of the other signs and they did not resonate as much as Virgo did. Hmm. And so I became curious, became interested in learning a little more. Eventually, that interest became, uh, uh, took the form of, uh, of a reading. I sent this astrologer in North Carolina, who I knew nothing about. I had seen one of his books and thought he was a good writer. So I figured uh, he'd, uh, he'd settle the controversy, so to speak, and mm-hmm. um, sent him a check. And a few weeks later, I got back a, a two-hour cassette reading. Wow. He couldn't even, he didn't even know my name, he couldn't pronounce it correctly, hmm. but the, the reading itself was profound. It was one of the uh, uh, milestones in my own personal evolution. Hmm. The astrologer's name um, is Stephen Forrest, and I was so taken by that experience that I became a student. Wow. Yeah, hmm. that reading to date, to this day, I, I refer back to some of the insights and some of the images that he used uh, to, uh, to to validate myself uh, through the perspective of the cosmos. Uh, it, he literally gonged my soul. That's the way I describe that experience. <laughs> so beautiful. I became a student, and uh, eventually uh, I started doing readings myself. Wow, beautiful. Okay, so, um, so then after becoming a student... Um, and at this point, before, I don't know if this was before or after you became a professional, you were, apparently you told me you had had readings with many different people in addition to that first reading with Stephen Forrest, and you started discovering many conflicting views about astrology, many of them, I'm sure, contradictory, and did, is this what led to this period of confusion yes, you got I, into? I, I became a, the, the forgoing skeptic in me researched at a certain point, having attended many different astrological conferences, and realizing that because astrologers tend to be an oppressed minority, uh, we tend to simply <laughs> embrace every new perspective um, blindly to some extent, simply because there's enough criticism coming at us from uh, outside our little community. But I, I began to wonder, can what are the limits to astrology? How far can we stretch these symbols, the meaning of these symbols, before they actually snap, before we, we, we step beyond the bounds of of what's astrologically possible, mm. and um, uh, and that was one of the impetuses which, uh, that led me to uh, to the, the Under One Sky project. There were a few other uh, uh, a few other two I'd say two other incidents that sparked that project. Uh, one of them was a debate I had. At, uh, um, at over dinner at my sister's house. My sister is uh, a Jaminian trickster, and she immediately <laughs> introduced me to this man who was a very uh, orthodox mathematician, materialist of sorts, uh, as her brother, the astrologer. And, uh, <laughs> and yeah, he raised his eyebrows immediately and, uh, and declared uh, just how unimpressed he was. We got into an extended <laughs> conversation, and... Uh, um, and debate about astrology in general, and I found myself uh, drawing the Gawkland card uh, 
on the, on 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 that uh, on that study in order to to validate astrology to this man. Now, why don't you, uh, Raphael? Yes. Some of our listeners may not know what that is. So, would you mind briefly explaining what the Gokulin studies are? The Gokulin studies, and I'm not an expert. Um, they're they're extensive studies uh, that were done by a French statistician. Uh, in, initially, I believe he set out to disprove astrology, but uh, by the end of these studies, he decided that there was some fundamental basis to astrology based on certain statistical patterns that he discerned. Hmm. Now, there are some individuals that claim that uh, the studies are marred in controversy and that uh, that the data itself uh, was was either manipulated or it just simply d- did not reflect the actual uh, the complete data set that it was self-selective. Okay. I don't know. I can't. I, I really couldn't comment one way or the other. But even if the data was uh, was was perfect, that there was that, that basically it was clean data. Uh, my my objection or my concern is that uh, it may be statistically significant, but it's not astrologically significant. There was no basis statistically for the astrological signs and. The, the meanings of the planets were anything but astrological. Hmm. Um, and so, so I felt like an imposter, quite honestly, hmm. because I myself didn't really resonate with the results. I, in other words, my astrological practice did not reflect what the Gotham studies concluded. Huh. And so I just simply felt, um, I felt uh, somewhat powerless. How, how do I, as an astrologer, validate this, this, this practice, this science that I'm practicing, uh, this body of knowledge, how do, I, how, do I, uh, how do I convince others, not so much convince others, but even just re- re- uh, represent what it is that I'm doing to myself? How can I understand what it is that I'm doing? People mm-hmm. are coming to me, they're asking fundamental questions about uh, uh, life-changing decisions, and, and what is this ground that I'm standing on? Uh, offering them information and advice, and I really didn't have a very good answer. Hmm. And uh, at about the same time, I read a chapter in a book called Eye to Eye by Ken Wilbur. The chapter was uh, is t- entitled uh, The Problem of Proof, and Ken Wilbur is no fan of astrology in particular. But I felt that uh, that chapter was very relevant to astrology because he made a distinction between different kinds of sciences. He talked about uh, monological sciences, like chemistry, uh, biology, physics, the kinds of sciences that you take an empirical yardstick. Okay. And you basically establish validity claims based on, 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 on certain quant- uh, quantitative measures. Okay. That are taken in in uh, under under uh, controlled uh, conditions and uh, dialogical sciences, and these are the human sciences. These are the humanities. Uh, can you prove the meaning of Hamlet? The answer <laughs> is quantitatively, you cannot. Mm-hmm. What is the meaning of the flag? Well, it depends on who you ask. The dialogical dimension uh, of astrology was very apparent to me. Because that is basically what we do. We interpret symbols. When you're dealing with dialogical sciences, deal with symbols, deal with interpretation. They're hermeneutic. Mm. They're phenomenological. They deal with consciousness. There's an exchange of meaning. 
And the point that Wilbur made, basically, that the yardsticks for establishing validity claims of a dialogical science are fundamentally different than, uh, than the yardsticks used to establish the validity claims of a monological science. Fascinating. And, uh, and if, in fact, and we know that there, there have been many attempts to validate astrology uh, empirically using uh, monological tools, and they've all failed. Mm-hmm. In my opinion, I'm not particularly impressed with the Gawkland study. And so I thought to myself, well, maybe we've been using the wrong yardstick by which to measure the validity of astrology. Maybe instead of statistics, maybe we need to have dialogue, information, uh, words, as opposed to numbers. And, um, and the, the confluence of, the, of these different events that I just mentioned really uh, sparked the vision of under one sky as a phenomenological or a dialogical experiment of astrology that, used to, that, uh, that might validate the limits of astrology, what astrology can and can't do. And so basically, the premise was to take a birth chart, birth chart that I, a woman's birth chart, and I, I knew this woman, I didn't know her very well, uh, I didn't know her life story, I thought she was an interesting woman, and so I figured her birth chart was, might reflect something uh, of the qualities that uh, that uh, uh, she she embodied, and uh, to basically have twelve different astrologers representing twelve different traditions using 12, their their respective toolkits do an interpretation of her birth chart, a blind interpretation. They didn't even know her name. I inter- I, I gave them a pseudonym, and uh, uh, Joyce uh, would uh, write her autobiography. And so the book basically represents the 12 interpretations, which is like a portrait gallery of readings, mm-hmm. and, uh, and uh, uh, her autobiography. And the reader is in a position to compare uh, just how much resonance there is between one particular perspe- astrological perspective and, uh, and, and uh, her, her life story, the yeah. facts of her life. Anecdotally, I knew Joyce. Uh, she died a few years ago, but uh, she was married to the Qigong master, Michael Wynn, who's a friend of mine. And uh, I, I, was, I interacted with her many times on social occasions, and she was actually the one who turned me on to the book. So uh, that, that's a little connection you, ha- you and I have around that, too. <laughs> well, that's, that's very interesting. As a matter of fact, Michael uh, is the man, it's the person who introduced me to Robert Pegg, the man who's become my, my Qigong teacher. Beautiful. That's, yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. yeah. All right, so, so so what did you determine after writing Under One Sky and getting these 12 perspectives? Did that, for you, validate astrology further, or did you make did it make you more of a skeptic? It, it, it validated certain aspects of astrology for me further. Um, it... In conversations with Joyce and just reading the book for myself, uh, I, I came to the realization that astrology becomes more most meaningful when it's dealing with meaning, mm. when it's dealing with psycho-spiritual issues, and that's where it excels, right. uh, more so than trying to squeeze concrete facts out of symbols. Mm, right. Uh, mm-hmm. And... Um, and there, there is some confusion in the astrological world. I mean, if we turn back the clock about a hundred years, 
Evangeline Adams uh, uh, was the, the individual, the personality that uh, that brought astrology to the forefront of uh, of the mainstream. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, I guess it was about a hundred years ago she was um, summoned to court for practicing fortune telling. Huh. And um, and the case was settled after she did a blind reading of uh, the, uh, of a chart that the, the judge gave her a certain birth time. Huh. And uh turned out that it was his son, and she looked at the chart, and she made all kinds of very concrete predictions, including the prediction that he had died young, uh, he had drowned when he was young, or that whoever, he, she didn't know that he was referring, it was the, the birth chart of, of his son, but basically she said this person died young uh, by drowning. Wow. And, uh, and which turned out to be true. Mm. And so I, I seriously doubt that uh, very many astrologers uh, would be able to squeeze that kind of information from a birth chart. Do you think she um, was partly psychic and that was helping well, her out? If, right, exactly. If you look <laughs> at her birth chart, she had the South Node in Pisces, conjunct uh, Mercury, and uh, the Sun is uh, in Aquarius, also in the 12th house. And uh, she has Venus and Jupiter in the 12th house. So she has a 12th house. Good Lord. <laughs> uh, stellium with a south node, heavily, uh, uh, very Piscean. So if we look at her chart, we would expect her to be a mediumistic astrologer. Yeah. I've, been, I've had uh, psychic readings, incredibly accurate psychic readings, where all kinds of concrete events are referenced. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, Mediumistic astrologers or psychic astrologers may be able to do that, but it's, that comes through the mediumistic dimension, through that skill set, as opposed to the astrological skill set. I can't do that. I couldn't do that. Yeah. I'm not sure that I know any astrologer personally um, that could uh, squeeze concrete facts out of reading. And to the extent that people tried in Under One Sky, I'm not sure that they were very successful, hmm. quite honestly. And so if you set aside the, the, the dire need to validate astrology by, by trans, reducing it to a monological science where you're dealing with concrete facts and quantitative measures, if you put that to the side and, and begin to honor astrology as a dialogical science, as, as, as uh, a means through which you can deepen meaning, uh, and stretch psychological understanding of yourself and others. And uh, I believe that uh, astrology begins to become, well, it becomes uh, more, more relevant for the, the, the modern individual hmm. and, uh, um, and more powerful, more powerful. So yeah. that's, that's, the, that's what I concluded uh, from Under One Sky. The image that, co- that came to me is you imagine uh, two people sitting side by side on a train, and maybe the train is heading north, but uh, one is heading home from work and the other one is heading to work from home, objectively, they're heading in the same direction, but subjectively, they're heading in opposite directions. Ah. And so concretely, they're both heading north, but uh, uh, astrologically, one might be heading towards the 10th house, one might be heading towards the 4th house. (laughs) And there's no way for us to know that unless we engage them in dialogue. So astrology becomes relevant to the level of meaning.
Mm. It is an interpretive science. It is a science that uses words to exchange information. Mm. And so, um, so that that was the conclusion that I came to. Beautiful. So, as a result of this project, could you could we sum that up by saying that astrology is archetypally predictive, but not concretely predictive? We could say that. Okay. Beautiful. We could say that. Mm -hmm. Okay. Nice. Yeah. I'm. I'm a big. I have a lot of Capricorn. I love to sum things up nice and neat. Okay. <laughs> and 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 that actually is a good segue because I think the the concept of archetypes is young. Uh, Jung uh, describe them and uh, uh, maybe a little different than, than than my understanding of archetypes and synchronicity and huh. uh, um, and this sort of brings us to the next topic which is uh, the material uh, I, I wrote about in transpersonal astrology okay. in a chapter entitled astrology the noetic science okay and let me let me just overview the the project for a minute if I can. Uh, sure. This book was published in May of this year, 2013, and we're actually recording this interview on August 26, 2013. And it contains, I believe, um, uh, 16 chapters, uh, not including the intro and the postscript. So there's 16 different authors involved. And uh, Raphael's uh, article, Astrology of the Noetic Science, is the last one in the book, right right after mine. And uh, it's just a collection of of articles by astrologers who understand that there is a spiritual dimension to astrology and it needs to incorporate the transpersonal aspects and every article every chapter takes a whole different approach i mean it's like 16 different perspectives on the topic of transpersonal astrology and i found it personally to be a really rich and rewarding uh experience just just out of curiosity Rafael, are you selling this book from your website it's not on my website at this point though. okay all right, I've I've actually got it on my side. I'm now referring people to Amazon because, you know, I think I've 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 had the first flush of orders. So if people want to order this, they can they can find it through astroshaman.com, my site. Just go to the products uh, pull down, or you can just go straight to Amazon and just look for Transpersonal Astrology Explorations at the Frontier. It's about a $25 book, and if you are into this kind of astrology, it's just fascinating. It's, I was just super impressed by the quality of the writing throughout. I would be honored to have this even if my chapter wasn't in it. I, I frankly think it's worth having just for Raphael's chapter, but we'll learn more about that in a minute. <laughs> well, thank you. Okay, so sorry for the for the segue there, but uh, so you, you wrote the article on the Astrology and Noetic Science? Yes, I did. And the, the, just to lay out a, a broad context for everything else that, uh, that uh, I'm about to say, um, my own personal view is that astrology is on an evolutionary journey that, uh, that mirrors the evolution of human consciousness. We'll return with more of our interview with Raphael Nasser. How much valuable astrological information can you get for just $15? Far more than you might expect, thanks to the Time Passages Natal Report. This is by far the best natal computer report I've ever seen. It provides an extraordinary depth of interpretation with a consistently positive tone. A computer report can never replace a human astrologer, but the Time Passages Natal Report will provide you with a wealth of insights into your natal chart. It can also serve as a great introduction to astrology or help anyone understand themselves better. I was amazed at how much I learned about myself from its insightful interpretations. The Time Passages Natal Report also makes a unique and affordable gift for all occasions. 
To learn more or place your order, visit astroshaman.com. From there, click on Products in the menu bar and choose Computer Reports from the drop-down menu. Satisfaction guaranteed or your money back. How much valuable astrological information can you get for just $15? Order your risk-free Time Passages natal report and find out. the Paleolithic uh, era, um, paleoastrology emerged, and the Neolithic birthed uh, astro-divination. And during antiquity, or the Axial Age, the horoscope was invented, and, and, and it was bound to a very rigorous logical determinism, something that really didn't exist prior to that era. During um, uh, modernity, uh, we... we introduced uh, more of a choice-centered astrology, and, and more recently, during post-modernity, uh, we started talking about astrology in psychological terms, mm-hmm. spiritual terms. And I feel that these, at each time a different wave of human emergence arises, life conditions change, and we begin to engage reality through a different lens, a different perspective, Every time there's a paradigm shift, there's an astrological paradigm shift because Mm -hmm. astrology is subject to the culture that creates it. And we're in the midst of yet another evolutionary wave. You could call the integral uh, wave or or, um, the post-postmodern wave, um, whatever you choose to call it. Uh, something fundamental is happening to the way we're experiencing reality and to the way we're interpreting meaning. Our purpose in the world, our purpose as individuals, our function as human beings in our relationship to the cosmos. And as a result of this emergent wave at the level of culture, I believe uh, there's going to be a, a, a parallel wave of astrological emergence as well. And... Uh, and I feel that the book Transpersonal Astrology is really an attempt by different astrological pioneers to begin to give uh, shape and uh, uh, to to what this astrological next step might be. Mm. And um, and uh, the chapter in this book is is my contribution to that process. Beautiful. So so how is it that humans created the meanings of the planets? And again, feel free to fill in as much background or lead-in information as you need to, to to make the point well. Right. Well, I mentioned that um, we're subject to the culture in which we grow up. And so I think it helps us to begin this discussion maybe by laying some groundwork. We're fundamentally all subjects of the modern age mm-hmm. uh, and modern culture, whether we know it or not. And, um, and something you might be emerging, but for the most part, we, we, uh, we are a product of, of the modern world. And so it might help for us to take a look historically at, uh, uh, at modernity, the rise of modernity, the peak of modernity, and the tail end of the modern age as it appears to be unfolding. Cool. And then to, begin to, and, and then to look at astrology, uh, to contextualize astrology within, within that developmental arc 
and possibly beyond. Mm. Which Is that you, all right? Yeah, which you do beautifully in the chapter. I was hoping you would cover that material here. Okay, great. So... So the father of modern philosophy is uh, Descartes. Uh, during uh, the time he lived, and he was born in the late uh, 1590s, uh, and he lived uh, until 1650, uh, a battle was brewing between this new perspective that was emerging, uh, between the natural the philosophers, or scientists as we would call them today, and, and the theologians. Basically, it was a battle between the, the the body and the mind were nature and God. And uh, Descartes basically straddled both worldviews. He was a highly religious man, and he was also um, a mathematician and, uh, and very interested in this emerging uh, materialist worldview. And so the way he sought to create a... Uh, well, he used his philosophy to basically try and pacify the situation by, by erecting this... this this artificial, arbitrary fence uh, between between religion and science, and uh, proclaiming that uh, uh, that nature belonged to the scientists and God and the soul belonged to was under the jurisdiction of the domain of the theologian. So basically, mm. he severed reality into two, and. Uh, and he felt that was just a, a, a neat solution to the to the problem. What he didn't realize is that he, in fact, that that division would basically define modernity, mm. because not long after um, after he 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 made this division, uh, there be, there came two camps. I mean, the, the mind doesn't. It's it's hard to conceive of reality where basically you have you have two realities. Uh, coexisting simultaneously. So the earliest philosophers decided to try to, to reconcile this division through absurd uh, rationales, like uh, so, some, some individuals said that basically uh, God micromanages every event that happens in the physical world is, is, is controlled by God, and that's how basically this, this, the, the mental world controls the physical world. That's how the two connect, because you think your thought, I'm going to lift my arm, and your arm goes up. If, if, the, if the body and the mind represent two different ontological realities, how does that happen? Mm. And that was not a very satisfactory uh, 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 philosophical uh, argument. And so what happens next is you get a battle between the materialist and the immaterialist. And so you have a group of philosophers arguing that, uh, in fact, uh, uh, materialism is all there really is, that mind is just simply an epiphenomenon, or just simply that, that there is no God, there is no need for God. I mean, this, this is uh, an argument posited by, the, uh, by, by modern philosophy later on, but it's that, that that perspective begins to emerge early on in the history of uh, modern philosophy, and you have those who argue that, in fact, everything material is just illusory, sort of like Maya, as mm. argued in the in the Vedas, and that the world itself is really just uh, an idea manifesting in the mind of God. And you get this battle going back and forth, but then what tends to, what what happens is that uh, science becomes incredibly prolific and. Um, 
and as a result of scientific discoveries, the whole cosmological uh, scheme that dominated in pre-modern times is is shattered. And that cosmological uh, scheme basically has the Earth at the center of of these crystalline spheres, the outermost sphere being uh, the um, Empyrean, where God lives. So the universe is closed and uh, finite and, uh, and and geocentric, and this is uh, a worldview that's commonly embraced by uh, the Jewish tradition, the Christian tradition, uh, the Muslim tradition. So no one's arguing this perspective. It's very fundamental to pre-modern worldview, and it's fun- and and astrology itself is very closely uh, uh, connected to that particular perspective. And what happens is that you have Kepler and Galileo and eventually Isaac Newton as a result of their their discoveries, uh, that scheme begins to, to fall apart. Mm. And as it falls apart, so does astrology, because astrology was so heavily invested in that particular paradigm. Right. And by the time uh, uh, modernity begins to peak, you astrology, as well as religion, uh, both of which were uh, heavily associated with one another, will uh, basically fall from favor. And um, and what's, what emerges is a very materialistic perspective. Um, now, the solidity, the physicality of the universe begins to undergo a shift with Albert Einstein's theory because he represents the universe as not that solid. It's more like molten wax. It's constantly Mm shape-shifting. What's really happening depends on on where you are and how fast you're traveling and relative distances and speeds. Mm -hmm. So so he begins to thaw the solidity of the Newtonian universe that that the materialists were, uh, uh, had, had developed. And, uh, uh, during what I'm calling late modernity, as this this this, this materialist perspective begins to fall apart even more, uh, we have, uh, as a result of uh, quantum mechanics, uh, for instance, um, Werner Heisenberg talked about uh, uh, the observer changing the observed merely through the act of observation, meaning that somehow material reality could change, could transform as a result of consciousness. Consciousness mm-hmm. could transform mater- the way material systems behave, or material at the quantum level. And and that was uh, uh, preposterous from the perspective of, of materialism, the materialism that had come to define modernity. Mm. Uh, there was a quote uh, from Werner Heisenberg that I particularly like, and uh, he said that the, the first gulp from the the glass of uh, natural sciences will turn you into an atheist, but at the bottom of the glass, God is waiting for you. <laughs> and and in a sense, that's what is beginning to happen now, um, as more and more quant- scientists uh, are beginning to recognize that consciousness is not just uh, an epiphenomenon of matter, but that you can begin you, by applying consciousness. Uh, in particular ways, through focused meditation, you can change the way material systems behave. 
mm. not just at the quantum level, but at the level that we interact with on a daily basis. And uh, the work of William Tiller uh, struck me uh, particularly in this regard. Now, William Tiller was featured in What the Bleep Do We Know? He was the chair of material science and engineering at Stanford um, University, and he conducted a series of experiments. His first book, uh, or the book that I purchased of his, was uh, Conscious Acts of Creation. Hmm. And most of it is overhead, I'm not a scientist. Uh, but there is one experiment that he does describe that I was able to, to really contextualize um, and understand. And basically what he did was he had uh, four different people, seasoned meditators, focus on this electrical device that just ran a current. Basically, it was an electronic placebo. Didn't really do anything, it just ran a current. They used it as a talisman, so to speak. Hmm. And they focused an intention on that uh, on, on that device that they called an IIED, Intentional Intention Imprinted Electrical Device. Hmm. And the intention was to raise the pH of a solution of water by one, which is highly significant. And uh, they set a second intention to basically seal the first intention, and then they took water uh, and they set aside uh, uh, water with the besides the IIED, at one end of campus, and they had uh, some some of that water also as control uh, at the other end of the campus, and uh, and they just tracked changes in the pH of the water solutions uh, over time, and it took some time, but eventually the pH of that solution of water went up by one, wow, which was remarkable, and they repeated the experiment, only this time they decided to lower the pH of the solution by one, and the results were basically the same. Hmm. They were able, through conscious intention, to raise or lower the pH of the solution uh, of water, which is remarkable enough. But here's where it gets really interesting. What they did then is they... Uh, they removed the IIED and basically replicated the same experiment with uh, different water in the same room, in the same location. Mm -hmm. So basically it was just a room, an empty room. There was nothing there. It's the room where the IIED was previously. And they tracked the pH, uh, the change in the pH of that uh, solution of water. And the same thing happened. The pH of the solution went up or down, went up, let's say. Uh, by a factor of one over time. and um, Were there still people meditating at it, or was this just like no, after no, no, effects? No, 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 no. There was no one meditating. It was just that room where they ran the experiment. Hmm. They placed another solution of water there. And uh, uh, not only that, but then they, they repeated the experiment. Uh, they wanted to trace just how far that the event horizon uh, of, of that change would actually spread, and I believe it was about 150 feet. So water solutions out up to 150 feet out from the original position of the first experiment were still carrying uh, that, uh, that charge, that intentional charge to transform the solution of the water by a factor of one. Wow. And so they concluded that something about space remembers, that space is malleable to intention that consciousness can transform space as we experience it. And so um, it's 
it's uh, it's a remarkable finding, mm-hmm. and um, we that opens up. We could start talking about this from many different perspectives, but let's just focus on the astrological okay. uh, perspective, and that is that uh, if consciousness can, if four people focusing their intention uh, for fifteen minutes can transform the pH of a solution. Uh, and for, uh, over a distance of 150 feet, what happens when billions of people, or certainly millions of people over thousands of years, worship uh, the planets as deities? Hmm. Uh, how do we account for the consciousness projected by humankind uh, on the planets? The planets are the shared legacy of our species, whether you're living... Uh, the northern hemisphere, the southern hemisphere, the stars may look, the, 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 the star maps are going to look differently, but the planets are the same. Mm-hmm. Um, and the sun and the moon and, uh, and the wanderers, the other wanderers as well. And um, so I began to, well, I was really, of course, taken by the, uh, uh, by the, uh, the work of Tiller, it really got me thinking about the relationship between consciousness and astrology. And uh, um, then, uh, more rec- a, a few years after reading uh, Tiller's work, I, I met Robert Tank, the Qigong master that uh, uh, I am uh, currently studying with. And um, and at the end of the first workshop he ever taught, he had us do a little experiment and basically brought out two cups of, uh, well, a bottle of brandy and everyone had two cups and you would fill one, both cups with a little brandy, you'd put one away and you take the other one and you'd use your intention, your, your, your powers of visualization and your intention and your chi or your vital energy to basically drain the cup that you were holding of all the bitterness and the heaviness of, uh, of the alcohol. Hmm. And, and then uh, we would, you would take a little sip of the first glass, and it would take about 30 seconds to a minute, just using different gestures, different mudras. And then uh, we took a sip of the second um, uh, of the second glass, and that second glass was just, it tasted, I gagged on it the first time I did this. I literally gagged. I couldn't believe how disgusting that second glass tasted as opposed to the first glass. And that was... And the so Robert jokes, that's the oh. way he, he makes cognac out of brandy. <laughs> yeah. But uh, for anyone who's interested in, do, in, in testing this from themselves, they can Google Robert Peng, A Game of Chi Power. There's a video on YouTube. Mm-hmm. and they can just do the experiment for themselves. Now, the reason I would encourage people to do this is because it's one thing to read about a science experiment with a group of people are transforming the pH solution of, uh, of water, and it sounds very technical and abstract and interesting, but when you yourself experience the power of your own mind to transform physical reality, uh, it it uh, it makes a mark. It makes a deep mark. Um, and so, after experiencing uh, Robert's chi and uh, validating for myself my own mental powers uh, through this experiment, 
I, uh, I began to think much more seriously about uh, the possibility that human consciousness, in fact, was responsible for, the, uh, for, for uploading meaning, archetypal meaning, on the, on the, uh, the, uh, ast- on the planets, giving them astrological meaning. Mm-hmm. Um, do you, before moving on to the next, uh, the next concept I wanted to, to introduce, do you have any questions or comments? Um, I, I just want to comment that you do give the experiment you just described in your chapter, so that's another way people can get it, is to read about it in the book Transpersonal Astrology. Um, yes. And actually, you're, you're giving such a fantastic narrative, I don't feel a whole lot of need to say anything. I, I, I don't feel like you're missing anything, or I, I don't have any questions at this point, so carry on, by all means. Right. So... Having studied uh, the work of Kent Wilber, and in particular the work of uh, Dr. Don Beck, who I, I worked with uh, in, for a period of two years, uh, um, and I was living in the Middle East at the time, so I got to know him very well and to familiarize myself with the system that he teaches, uh, which is called Spiral Dynamics, um, I began to recognize there was... And spiral dynamics is basically a system, it's a conceptual framework that tracks uh, the emergence of human consciousness over various waves of mm-hmm. development. began to draw a connection between astrology and spiral dynamics, or these waves of human emergence. And basically, uh, according to spiral dynamics, as life conditions change collectively uh, here on the uh, on the planet, uh, different perspectives emerge, different ways of interpreting reality emerge, different capacities, different form, different kinds of problems emerge, and as a result, different worldviews emerge. And um, I began to, to, to realize that, that over time, uh, as, as these waves of human emergence unfolded, uh, different planets were deified, different planets were mythologized, different archetypes were held in, in uh, uh, hierarchical exaltation over others. Um, and uh, I, de- I describe uh, this in greater detail in, in uh, Armin Diaz's uh, Transpersonal Astrology, but I'll, I'll share some of, uh, some of these relationships uh, with you now. Uh, basically, our, our species is about 200,000 years old. And for the first 150,000 years of our history, there's very little to distinguish us from older uh, uh, humanoids. Mm-hmm. Uh, other uh, uh, proto-humans go, dating back perhaps a million years. Our tools were not very sophisticated. There's no evidence... Um, for the dissemination of culture and or religion and or music and or language. Um, but something happened about 50,000 years ago, and uh, this great big surge of, of creativity emerges for the first time into the fossil record. And what it is that happened about 50,000, 60,000 years ago is the Ice Age, the last Ice Age, really began to... Uh, suck out the moisture from the atmosphere, life conditions became much more difficult. Hmm. Um, and, and what's posited by uh, anthropologists is that 
what are the adaptive, what, what are the ways that our ancestors adapted to uh, the, these harsh life conditions was by developing uh, a new way of relating to the universe, namely symbolically. So symbolic language emerges, um, which is not to say that humans more than 50,000 years ago, 100 or 200,000 years ago, were less, any less intelligent than we were. Mm-hmm. They had mastered fire. So they had what uh, I call elemental intelligence because that's what it takes to create fire. So if you want to create fire and, and uh, storm clouds are gathering, you're not going to want to build a fire outdoors. Why? Because water negates fire. Mm-hmm. So to master fire, you need to understand the concept of negation. Mm. And uh, uh, so you're going to look for shelter, a cave. Well, if you, if, if you build a fire by the mouth of the cave, then one big gust of wind will blow it out. So that doesn't work either. Wind can, can also uh, be detrimental to fire. But if you take uh, the fire all the way to the end of the cave where there's not much oxygen, the, uh, the fire will starve. Um, so you need to understand... The, the, the concept of balance, that air balances, that water negates fire and air balances. You need to find the right place inside the cave where you can create that fire. Mm. And you also need to understand the concept of affirmation, that is that you need to feed the fire. You need to feed the firewood for it to continue burning. And so this is the, the, the foundation of human intelligence. What it is that separates us from other species is our mastery of fire. Hmm. And I call this elemental intelligence. Now, 50,000 years ago, 50,000 years ago, symbolic language emerges above, above elemental intelligence. And if you start to think about the astrological signs, symbolically, you begin to see that when we're thinking astrologically, we're just creating fire. We're running through that same basic process. I'll give you an example. Uh, we take Aries, the archetype of war, the archetype of victory, um, and uh, what is it that negates victory? What is it that negates uh, the capacity to win? And uh, the answer to that is, well, defeat. Mm-hmm. And we look to the sign that precedes Aries, we have Pisces. So Pisces negates Aries. And in war, when you're fighting someone uh, and you can't win, well, how, how do you manage that situation? What is it that brings a sense of balance to war? And the answer is, well, you have diplomacy, you have compromise, you have negotiations, and so there we're dealing with the sign that opposes Aries, which is Libra, hmm. the diplomat, diplomacy. And um, uh, uh, too much diplomacy or too little diplomacy, and you could end up losing uh, more than, you know, you, people fight Pyrrhic, Pyrrhic victories, and you can lose more than is worth losing without, you know, sometimes negotiation is the high ground, is how you ultimately both win in a, in a situation of conflict. And, and, and that perspective arises as a result of, uh, of air. So too little air and too much air may not be good, but the right balance of air will allow Aries to thrive. You walk away still feeling like a winner. And, of course, Taurus is the earth is what Aries feeds on. The, the promise of bounty, the promise of wealth, the promise of spoils. 
Mm. So this is just an example of how when we're thinking astrologically, we are thinking elementally. Mm. Rather than reifying the astrological, uh, uh, the, the, the four elements and transforming them into some kind of, uh, elevating them to some metaphysical realm, to me, it makes a lot more sense to think of them as just really foundational aspects of human intelligence. And then 50,000 years ago, when symbolic thinking emerges, we're, uh, we're in, we, we enter this phase of human uh, consciousness where we're beginning to develop our capacity to think symbolically on, uh, along uh, elemental uh, op- uh, uh, using these elemental operations to help us along that process. And so um, language itself comes into every concept, comes into relationship with every other concept um, by virtue of these elemental operations that, uh, that I've described. And the formulation of, or, or one way to formalize all those relationships is the, the zodiac, the zodiacal mandala. And, uh, uh, yeah, I digressed a little bit, but just, uh, just wanted to point out that just how deeply rooted the astrological mind is. It really delves back to the very emergence of human consciousness in the form of the four elements and then begins to assume symbolic importance about 50,000 years ago when we as a species developed the capacity to envision imaginatively and, and draw relationships. Um, that are elementally uh, correct. Hmm. So, um, so now, I, I want to, years uh, ago during... Let me just intervene. Uh, um, yes. On my recorder, we're about at the 54-minute mark. So oh. we don't have to stop right at one hour, but if you're wanting to keep this more or less to an hour, then I just wanted to give you a sense of our pacing. Okay, thank you. I should probably have a clock there. <laughs> uh, yeah, Saturn in Pisces, what can I say? So, uh, yeah, so... Very, um, so basically, uh, the life conditions become very difficult. Survival is at, is, is, uh, um, is precarious and, uh, temperatures drop. It's 54 degrees in the summertime and, um, it's, it's a scary time. And during this period, there emerges in human consciousness a relationship between macrocosm and microcosm, uh, and that relationship is the the connection between the menstrual cycle and the lunar cycle, both of which are are correlated. And actually, Raphael, uh, let me let me cut in again. Um, I think yes. what you're saying is so fascinating that I'm going to not worry about any timing. And if you have time to talk, you know, I'd be happy if this thing went two hours. So. If you want to take your time and fully develop your concepts, please feel free to do so. And I can, if necessary, I can split this into a two-part interview for the show. So, so don't feel restrained by time because it, what you're talking about is too rich to to worry about an arbitrary marker that's not really needed. So carry on okay. at your leisure. So the moon became the mother, and uh, regulating the the reproductive cycle of other mothers. And uh, there's a a carving, a stone carving dating back uh, maybe 19,000 years uh, or thereabouts uh, representing the, the um, archaeologists call it the goddess of Vosel and it's uh, the representation of a woman, pregnant woman, 
uh, holding her belly with one arm and uh, the lunar crescent with the other arm, and there's 13 notches uh, on the lunar crescent re- representing the 13 lunar months of the year. Mm. And uh, I call that uh, the, the goddess of Mosal the, the oldest testament. You have the Old Testament, the New Testament, where the oldest testament <laughs> is the goddess of Mosal, in that it's, in, in fact, what is, what is the purpose of religion is to create some sense of connectedness between ourselves as individuals or as a community or as a species and the greater cosmos, the universe, the mystery of life itself. And in Paleolithic times, the way that uh, connection was made uh, in all probability was uh, during the Ice Age, certainly, was through the figure of the moon. Chaos, blood, uh, uh, danger, um, harsh life conditions, fear, existential fear, and then you would look up at the moon and recognize there's some kind of connectedness between the cosmos and the human condition. You begin to pray, uh, direct your consciousness, your conscious intention to the moon. And what is what what is what what are the uh, the values of the primary values associated with uh, the the um, that epoch? Well, shelter and uh, and home and family and food, just the basic fundamental uh, sur- uh, requ- what's required to survive. Um, uh, you'd pray whenever you felt vulnerable or you wanted, you were looking uh, for, for safety. And uh, so for thousands of years, millions of humans projected that consciousness uh, at the moon in and and it's important to recognize that this Paleolithic religion, where they worshipped the moon, uh, these goddess-like figures extend actually 3,000 miles from Western France all the way to China. Hmm. So we're talking about a global religion. Uh, it wasn't just simply localized, but it was quite uh, uh, quite a, develop- a, a perspective that really... Uh, uh, represented uh, the uh, critical mass of human consciousness. And if you look at the astrological mood, of course, today, what is it that the moon represents? The moon represents home and mother and shelter and safety and family, sense of vulnerability, desire for safety. Um, So we recognize in the modern astrological meaning of the moon, the fundamental social structure, the family structure, the tribal structure of uh, that, that characterized uh, um, uh, Paleolithic societies, their, their core fundamental value, which was the desire for, for safety, um, the incredible imagination that uh, the imaginative uh, uh, revolution that emerges during that age, storytelling and uh, uh, in the form of myths and totem animals, uh, campfire stories, these are all very imaginative spring out of this lunar consciousness that characterizes Paleolithic, uh, the Paleolithic era. Now, when we shift our... When life conditions change about 12,000 years ago, so does collective consciousness. The end of the Paleolithic uh, signals the beginning of the Neolithic age. And the, if, if safety was the core value of uh, 
the Paleolithic age, power becomes the core value of the Neolithic age. And if the moon is the reigning deity of the Paleolithic, the sun becomes the reigning deity of the Neolithic age, which basically, uh, depending on how you decide to slice up history, uh, dates back to 12,000 to about 2,500 years ago. And so the Ice Age ends, and uh, life conditions improve. So there's a lot more food. Uh, society, a settled, uh, 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 societies um, grow into, these little tribes grow into settlements, and settlements eventually uh, sustain themselves uh, through horticulture and husbandry. Um, Metallurgy is developed eventually, and uh, agriculture develops, and as a result of the higher yields, uh, cities are developed, and um, the great river valley civilizations emerge. And granaries are built to store up these surplus goods. And metal, so metal is used to create plows that create these surplus goods, and also swords forged into swords to defend the granaries themselves. And so for the first time in, in the history of, of humanity, this great burst of confidence emerges because when you have enough food to last you uh, an indefinite period of time and the weather is good and life conditions support growth and development, you, the ego begins to emerge mm. as, a, as, a, as a, a psychological structure. In moments of fear during the Paleolithic, there's no room for ego. Assuming you're in the forest with someone who you're, uh, you know, someone who's offended you, insulted you, you're, you're, there, there's, there's ego, egoic tension between the two of you, and the flashlight dies and it's night, you hear weird sounds, and you're both frightened. Suddenly you're just moving closer together, and the ego just vanishes. It shrivels up in the face of fear or panic. Mm -hmm. Ego basically disappears as a, a psychological structure. Hmm. And so during the Paleolithic age, where basically you were just per, perpetually in, 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 in a state of, uh, of existential fear, because life conditions were just so harsh, there wasn't really much room. There wasn't room for the ego to emerge as a psychological structure. But that begins to happen during the Neolithic age. And the embodiment of institutionalized ego becomes the king. The king is like the big ego of society that emerges, the embodiment of the collective ego. Hmm. So kingship emerges during the Paleolithic. There's no such thing as kingship during the uh, during the Neolithic. During the Paleolithic, you you have different uh, different uh, uh, structures to to manage and organize societies, but kingship is not one of them. So during the during the uh, uh, the um, the Neolithic begin to uh, worship the sun, the solar hero, the archetype of the hero emerges. There there are no heroes when you're dealing with uh, Paleolithic tribal cultures. You're because life conditions are just so are so harsh. It's basically just you against nature. But when you begin to uh, grind up against other settlements, grind up against other settlements, civilization against civilization, then competition for resources begins to emerge. And the arch and and um, and then power and strength and bravado come into the fore. 
and honor, codes of honor begin to develop during this time. And these are all uh, associations that we make with the astrological sun. Of course, creativity, power, strength, honor, the hero. And um, so for, again, millions of people for thousands of years projecting these qualities at the sun. I doubt very much that these archetypes were... Uh, were part of collective consciousness during the Paleolithic age, right? The moon was worshipped as the goddess. The sun was like this weak 40-watt bulb passing through the sky. <laughs> uh, but uh, there wasn't much power there. So, um, and we could continue with uh, the different, uh, the different uh, epochs and the different, uh, the different planets that uh, emerged into collective consciousness at different stages and how, in fact, uh, humanity took the zeitgeist of a particular age, the worldview that was emerging, and projected that worldview onto a particular planet or groups, group of planets. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you'd like, we could continue with that conversation. It's, or, uh, it's totally... I'm happy to do it, or if you want to leave it for people to discover it by reading the chapter which, where you go into all that, that's you're welcome to. I totally leave it in your corner. I have nothing else to do this afternoon, so if you want to keep talking, that's fine, or if you want to leave it there, that's totally your call. Um, well, let's talk about uh, the classical age, because I think that it's, it's highly relevant. We'll, we'll walk it another step. Okay. And we will take that step next week as we continue our interview with Raphael Nasser. By the way, if you would like to connect with Raphael, you can go to his website, raphaelnasser.com. That's R-A-F-A-E-L-N as in Nancy, A-S-S-E-R dot com. You can also email him at rafinasser.com. That's R-A-F-I-N-A-S-S-E-R dot com. At AstroShaman, I offer a unique mix of services, astrology, guided invocations, shamanic astrology, and shamanic healing. All services are as effective via phone or Skype as they are in person. Choose one or mix and match in the same session. Western astrology offers insights into soul purpose, career, relationships, spirituality, timing, relocation, and more. With guided invocations, you can learn how to call on your own divine essence for healing, awakening, or flowing divine energy to others. Shamanic astrology lets you communicate directly with your planet's living intelligence so that they express more harmoniously in your life. And with shamanic healing, you can experience full-spectrum healing and expanded spiritual consciousness customized for your highest good. I also offer electional astrology to help you pick the perfect date and time for any important event. My services are offered on a sliding scale. You can get a 20% discount during your birthday month, and gift certificates are always available. I work with clients all around the world via phone and Skype. You get a free digital recording of your session, and I accept PayPal and all major credit cards. Finally, my guarantee makes it risk-free. If you don't feel that your experience was helpful, it's free. For more information or to set an appointment, visit astroshaman.com, Email info at astroshaman.com or call 828-338-9852. I love my work 
and I look forward to being of service to you. We're wrapping up another show. If you enjoyed this week in astrology, please tell a friend or post or tweet about us or donate to support us at thisweekinastrology.com. You can link to our Facebook page and Twitter feed where I post daily forecasts. Every day there's a significant astrological event. You can get there from thisweekinastrology.com or from astroshaman.com. You can listen to This Week in Astrology on your smartphone or tablet at stitcher.com. And if you're an iTunes listener, please do subscribe through iTunes and help us maintain our standing as the number one astrology podcast on iTunes. Thank you so much for listening to This Week in Astrology. And until next week, may the stars light your way. This Week in Astrology is copyright 2013 by Astro Shaman. All rights reserved, although rampant sharing of this podcast is encouraged. You can access my free comprehensive audio archive from thisweekinastrology.com. If you'd like me to illustrate the weekly forecast with your chart, please send me your date, time, and city of birth. Sending in your chart data also gives you a chance to win a free session with me every time the seasons change. I welcome your general astrology questions and comments about the show and your specific personal questions. Just send an email to info at astroshaman.com. I look forward to making you a part of This Week in Astrology. Here's this week's index brought to you courtesy of my Virgo moon and other Virgo influenced planets. The overview begins at 1 minute 54 seconds, Monday 357, Tuesday 519, Wednesday 752, Thursday 1101, Friday 1117, Saturday 1456, Sunday 1643, next week's transits 1842. Announcements 2017 and our interview with Raphael Nasser, Part 1, 2602. Thank you so much for listening to This Week in Astrology.